today's episode, Dave interviews actor and comedian Tom Dreesen. Mr. Dreesen opened for Frank Sinatra for 13 years, and he has over 500 appearances on national television. I am Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. I, I, I always I used to ho- I host a lot of shows, but I always liked it where we weren't doing a a, a standard opening. No. Good evening, we're here today. I always like I always like for the audience to think they were voyeurs that we were already in the middle of a conversation I, and they right. had to just peek in. Well, you know Studs Terkel, right? You know what I'm talking well, about. I, I met Studs many many years ago, uh-huh. um, and uh, and but Irv Cupson in Chicago had a show similar called Caught in the Art of Lively Conversation, right, right, right. where you just and then in, in the old days Playboy had Playboy After Dark, where right. Hugh Hefner the camera just came in and they happened to be at Hugh's house and oh they gee just look happened. over here Bill Cosby <laughs> and then you walked right. over there and there was Studs Terkel, or, right? You know, are those interesting people? You know? Yeah, but uh, so you so so Cup would just talk about you being on the road and that sort of thing, right? Well, he would, you know, Cup would, would talk about local politics. He would just, right. he would just start a conversation, and, and, and that was what the um, catchphrase was, caught in the art of lively conversation. Right. So you could go anywhere you wanted to go, and, and uh, I, I've always liked that. It's not the kind of television that would probably work today because yeah. we're a soundbite um, mentality now. You know, get to the punchline, get to the joke, get to the, you know... Uh, you know, the great comedians, and to me, when I was growing up, where I used to listen to them on radio, there was a show called um, Can You Top This? Right. And there was all these comedians, but you could tell stories, right. storytelling. Today, the soundbite mentality, 60 seconds on television without a laugh is an eternity. You know? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, the interesting thing about, about coming off of radio, though, is comedians on radio and you got dead air on radio so yeah. there's that too but if you look at uh <laughs> you look at uh what's the name uh, uh charlie mccarthy edgar bergen and you go you can do anything on radio oh, yeah. you can do anything on radio. jack Benny was one of, one of two comedians that i emulate all comedians start out emulating another comedian they right. do an impression of what they think as a comedian, what will work, and eventually they let a little bit of themselves escape, and a little bit more, and pretty soon they become their own. Uh, Picasso said, "Try to paint like another artist. I dare you. Y- y- you will fail, but in doing so, you're going to find out the artist you are." Right. And that's what we comedians do. So I love Jack Benny, and I love Richard Pryor. Right. For two separate reasons. Pryor, I grew up in a neighborhood like Pryor. I right. mean, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. We had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. And it wasn't during the Depression. I'm not that old. But, but I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. My right. family wasn't liberal. They were poor is what we were doing. <laughs> I'm being, being facetious. But uh, I always say we were not poor. We were po. If that means we couldn't even afford the other O-R, you know. <laughs> but so Pryor spoke from my soul. When I, when I saw Pryor perform, it was, and I, I, I was that's, he was speaking to my neighborhood. Benny, conversely, I think a person is an artist in any endeavor. If they're a truck driver, a bricklayer, a bartender, whatever, if they make their work look one word, effortless. Right. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music. You will be my song. You say, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. And Jack Benny made comedy look easy. But you, but you just brought up three people. And the three people that you brought up, and I also noticed in a, in a bit that I watched of you on YouTube, all three of those people, you're talking about timing. You're talking about timing. Certainly Sinatra's timing, his breath, the way that he laid out a phrase. Um, Jack Benny is the king of timing mm-hmm. and also the king of patience. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, really patience. And, and, and Pryor came on like he was the first, can I say this? He was the first rock and roll 
um, comedian. He just came at you in such a raw fashion mm-hmm. that to like I'm looking at all those those influences that you had. Um, and to say that you you had everything that you needed there, and it just makes so so much sense that you'd be with Sinatra for fourteen years, who was mm. just all about timing as well. Mm. What's that bit that you did? Um, you did a bit about music that your daughter listens to, and oh oh, dirty old bastard or something like that. Old dirty bastard. Old dirty bastard. <laughs> you know, well, I was in a car with my daughter, and, yeah. and she said to me, Dad. You know, when you're alone in the car, who do you like to listen to? And I said, Old Blue Eyes, Frank right. Sinatra. Who do you like to listen to? She said, Old Dirty Bastard. <laughs> right, right. And, and I said, uh, she said, he's a rapper, Daddy. I said, that's not his name. She said, yes, that's his name. Uh-huh. I said, honey, that's not his name. That's his state name. She said, Daddy, that's his real name. I read it in the paper. It's his real name. And then I say to the audience, what kind of parents would name their child? <laughs> Old dirty bastard. I said, you know, and I start rocking a baby, and I, I look at the little bit, and I say, you know, he looks just like you. Why don't we call him Old Dirty Bastard? You know, right, right, uh, right. But then, then the tag on that line is, I say, but when I'm ninety years old, I can, you know, uh, I said, you know, I'm ninety years old. I can look at the woman in my life and say, do you remember when Old Blue Eyes sang, when all the songs are out of tune and all the rhymes ring so untrue? Then you, you will be my music. Mm. What's my daughter going to say when she's ninety? You remember what old dirty bastard said, if you promise not to snitch, we'll whack this bitch? <laughs> I said, it kind of gets you right here. Though. Right, right, right. <clears throat> right. I, but I'm hearing you do that, um, I, go, I, I, go, I go to the timing of it all. I go to the timing, the way that your, your presentation of that. And, and to wrap it up in a button, uh, and I'm getting technical here, to wrap it up in the button and the, and the tempo that you said it was just, it, I mean, it, it, it grabs you. It just grabs you. I'm alive performer. I never ever thought of show business as television. I grew up in the shack. We didn't actually have a television. Other families did. We didn't have a television. So I grew up listening to radio. If, if you played a, a, a um, when I was a little boy, if you played a word association game with me, if you said tall, I would say short. If you said black, I'd say white, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. If you said show business, I said Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. To me, that's what show business was, live performing. You know, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a student of it, mm-hmm. as well as this is my 40, in September will be my 44th year in show business. You know? I can teach classes, and I do at UCLA, USC, uh-huh. Cal State, Northridge. Mm-hmm. I, I teach classes to aspiring young comedians. I do it at the comedy store. I'm not mm-hmm. a comedy store anymore, but the Laugh Factory. I've done it at the Improv. I do a seminar sometimes called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and mm-hmm. how to get there. I can teach you a lot of things if you're a newcomer or if you're a veteran. But... The one thing that simply cannot be taught is timing. Right. And it's the, it's the, you either have it or you don't. You're born with it. You can develop and fine tune it, but if you don't have it, it's like, it's like trying to teach somebody, you know, rhythm. You either have it or you don't. Right. You know, as a singer, I don't. I would f- not know exactly where to come in all the time. Uh-huh. But as a comedian, I know where to come in, you know. But I, even as a little boy, I saw the humor. As an altar boy in church, when I was serving funerals, uh, mass at funerals, I would be thinking of, what if the lid, the handle came off? And the, I was always thinking of funny stuff that would get, and I went to Catholic school where the nuns don't reward you for ad-libs, you know. So, so, <laughs> where uh, were you in the order, in, on the order of the eight kids? They, I'm third. You're third? And it was my older brother, Glenn, and my sister, Darlene, uh-huh. who has since passed away from uh, multiple sclerosis. 
Oh, and, and that's who you do, uh, part of your charity, one of your charities. Yeah, is... for years I, I ran 26 miles. Every year I'd run 26 miles for multiple sclerosis. I called it 26 miles for Darlene. Mm-hmm. And people would pledge money for every mile I run, and that proceeds would go to research. I would bring in 20-something celebrities or more from Hollywood to Chicago right. to run with me. And they, they would run like Frankie Avalon, Tony Danza, Frankie Valley. You know, they would run like a block or two or a mile. Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all 26 miles. So, it's, yeah, that was the joy. You got a lot of Italians back there you just named. You just well, rattled off a bunch of I'm, Italians. I'm Irish Italian, which makes you a mean Oh, you're drunk. Irish Italian. It makes okay. you Gaelic and garlic, you know. It makes you mean drunk as all that makes you. Good. But, uh, but, yeah, but I, I um, uh, we used to hang out out here. In the, we have a thing, a group called the IMO, jokingly, Italian men only. Mm-hmm. We'd find an old Italian restaurant in, in the valley, and uh, we'd hang out in the back. It would be Frankie Avalon, uh, James Darren, um, Eddie Marinero, Dennis Farina, Joe Pesci, uh, Joe Montaigne. Um, I'm leaving out some guys. We made Smokey an honorary Sicilian. Smokey Robinson <laughs> could come and hang out with us. But uh, Chaz Palmentary, whoever's yeah. in town, we'd all get together. Like we're back in the old neighborhood. You know, Chicagoans, we love to hang out. That's our, our thing. We're hangout. We right. like to hang out. Right. Right. Uh, and so that that's the the fun would be, you know. I never was much of a Hollywood guy. I know that sounds ridiculous to you when you associate me with Frank Sinatra, but I was never a Hollywood guy. I never fit in well with Hollywood parties. First of all, I never snorted coke and I didn't smoke dope and I didn't get high. And 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 when I first came out here, if you didn't do that, you weren't in the in crowd. You right. Know? There were three comics at the comedy store who didn't get high. Me, David Letterman, and Jay Leno. Right. You know, and, and the rest of us, uh, rest of them. But, but so I didn't, I liked playing softball in, in, in the league that I did. I liked uh, playing basketball at the Van Nuys Y in the league. And, and, uh, and then getting together with those guys, first of all, I, I admired all those guys when I, before I was ever right. in the business. You know, uh, Frankie Avalon, when I was a kid, I used to listen to him. And, uh, you know, Frankie Valley, of course, with all of his hits. And so now they were my friends. And we, we would do shows together and everything. And then to go hang out in, in a restaurant and just talk, you know, it was fascinating to me. You know? All those guys, there's, there's also a, a passion for life in all those people. And, 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 and they don't seem to be negative and there seems to be a positive energy. And also your voice is a very positive energy. And certainly the motivational stuff that you're doing is very positive as well. And I was very, I was very moved by a lot of the things that you, that you were saying. Um, uh, certainly the little clips that you had on, on, your, uh, on your website in regards to the way, that you, your, the way that you look at life is the way that you look at life. And whatever you bring away from it is what you bring into your life. And all those people that you just described, having, being around you, hanging around you, the joy of all that, is the choice that you made is the choice that you made to live your life and you do it intentionally. Do you know what I mean? Well, first of all, I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I wasn't always this way. I shouldn't say I wasn't always. I, I strive to be that way. I when I was in the service, I mean I was a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. I was going to school at sixteen years old with holes in my shoes and raggedy clothes and you know what that's like for a high school kid. And and plus I had eight brothers and sisters and I, I would I had to help feed them. So I would work in bowling alleys till one, two o'clock in the morning Ugh. and then walk two and a half miles back to the shack I lived in and try to get up at seven o'clock and go to school right. and fall asleep in the study hall and everything. At age 16, I, I dropped out of school. At age 17, the day I turned 17, I joined the Navy. And I got a high school diploma in the service. And then I went to, um, um, you know, I went to uh, 
taught in junior college when I came out, junior college when I mm-hmm. came out. But I began to read every book I could get my hands on on positive mental attitude, from way back from Norman Vincent Peale right. uh, to, you know, Dale Carnegie books and all those kind of things. Um, and W. Clement Stone. And yeah. and that. I read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. Right. Literally hundreds. And I began to apply those sciences to my life. One, one of the best books for me was The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. Mm-hmm. Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve was written right. thousands of years ago. Right. And I began to apply those sciences as well as self-talk. You know, the most important person you'll ever talk to is yourself. Right. Today, my motivation speeches are on four subjects. Perception. Uh, all of life is about perception. Mm-hmm. Visualization. Uh, self-talk and develop a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I do this for corporate America and as well as for universities. I love doing it for students, you know. Right. But I do it for stand-up comedians too because of the negative industry we're in. I've known five stand-up comedians who committed suicide. Right. Five good stand-up. Richard Jenny, there was no one funnier yeah, than right, that kid. Yeah, right, right. And Freddie Prince and, right. and uh, you know, Steve Lebetkin and people I've known that committed suicide. Right. 85% of all stand-up comedians, by my uh, humble opinion, are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved, wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell one. Right. So what I try to teach the young kids is if you're an insecure, neurotic, love starved wreck when you're poor and unknown, when you're rich and famous, it doesn't get better, you know. No. It gets worse. Right. Because you thought rich and famous was going to take this angst away. Right. So if you don't get it right in here, in your center, now, it, it, when, you get, when you become rich and famous, it's going to get worse. So you'll start dumping then on your employees. I can name you a dozen so-called stars like that. So what I'm trying to teach mm-hmm. them is enjoy the journey. Right. When you find the work that you love, and that was my point, Ian. When, what changed my life, I'm sorry, I said Ian, Ian, <laughs> Dave. But when I, when I, I was talking to you, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> when I, what, what changed my life was I found the work that I love purely by accident. I was wandering aimlessly all of her life, wanting to be this positive person. But until I found that work that I love, mm-hmm. the first time I ever went on stage and I got a laugh from something I had written, it was, it was like an OB movie, like an epiphany, like the dark clouds opened up and I went, yeah, right. oh my God, this is what I want to do. Right. I want to do this the rest of my life. Right. I, mean, I, I couldn't sleep that whole night. I was married, had a wife and three kids. Mm-hmm. I got up the next morning and went to church. I hadn't been to church in a long time. It was a Saturday morning. It wasn't a service. There was no one in the church. It was a church where I had been an altar boy. In, in Chicago? In Chicago, in Harvey, Ascension Church. Who did you see? Pardon me? Who, when, when that epiphany happened, who was the source of that epiphany? I mean, ultimately, it was the, you were the source of the epiphany, but who, you saw somebody? No, I didn't see any. I just, <clears throat> it was just, it was like, a, like a, the dark clouds opened up. Got it. I'm, it came all over me like, whoa, this is what I want to do. When I, Something I had written... And it got a laugh. It got it. Me. I see. I see. I, I see. could not. I, see. I couldn't. It. That feeling that overcame right. me. Right. And and I went. To, I, I couldn't sleep all that night. I was right. laying in bed saying, "I found it. I found what I right. wanted to do." Right. I went to church. I got on my knees. I prayed. I said, "God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do." Ch-. I was making all these promises. I, I, there's a few times I wanted to put an addendum in that contract and say, "Lord, I left <laughs> well, a few can. things out." <laughs> you can. That's the thing about it. But my point is, is that from that point on, I mean, I struggled. For years, I slept in a car out here in Hollywood, but I never lost focus because I knew that's what I was put on this planet to do for me. Right. So my point is I can apply all those sciences, and, and, and I am a happy person and a joyful person, and I try to portray that to help others do that, but it's finding the work that you love. Less than 1% of the population of the world are fortunate to do that. Right. Know? 
But it's also about the, you, you, what do you call it? Self-talk? Talk? Is that what you call it? Self-talk. Self-talk. Yeah. Self that self-talk is, is a major part of it. And to know that you are your own best friend at the end of the day, you are the star of your own movie. You're the one that controls the choices that you make. And so when you had that epiphany, there was a joy that you had with being alive, a oneness that you felt in that moment, that I am indeed connected to myself and I love who it is that I am. And a lot of these... The self-loathing can only get you so far. The, the loathing of mankind can only get you so far. The negativity can only get you so far. And then you got to wake up with yourself in a world that you created that is, in, according to your perception, a negative world. Yeah, no question. See, two, the number, number one, Chad Helmstetter, for your, your listeners, look them, him up. He wrote the book called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. Uh -huh. And, and you can, you can um, subscribe to it on, on the Internet. And every day you'll get a, a positive self-talk message from uh -huh. Chad Helmstetter. H-E-L-M-S-T-E-T-T-E-R, self-talk. And, and, and it, will, it will change your life, change your direction in life. You know, um, the, the two faults comedians fall into, or most comedians, but the most important thing is they try to compare themselves with another comedian. Mm -hmm. I started out with Dave and, oh my God, he just did his first Letterman show. And, you know, and there's a great Hindu proverb that says, there's nothing noble about being superior to another man. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Uh -huh. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better father? Mm -hmm. Am I a better comedian than I was last year? Uh -huh. You're only in competition with your former self. I mean, I started with Jay and David. They're my buddies, you know, and, and people will say, yeah, look where they're at, look where you're at. I, I'm, I'm so happy for them yep. because I've never been in competition with them. I've listened to my tapes from last year. Have I grown? Uh, what type of material am I doing? Have I evolved there? Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, too, in show business, you know, we're governed by two energies in our life, all of our life, our ego and our Holy Spirit. Sure. Call it what you want, your center, your soul, but right. your Holy Spirit. Now, you weren't born... Ego. You were born pure spirit. Right. You didn't know if you were boy or girl, Jew or Gentile, black or white. You don't know what right. you were. You were a spirit that loved everything and loved everybody, and you gravitated to anything and everything that would love you. Right. So you're a spirit. Well-intentioned adults, sometimes misinformed, start to program your little computer saying, little boys do this, and we little girls do that. And by the time you're about three years old, you start to develop an image of yourself based upon their information. Thus, the ego is formed. Right. And the rest of your life, that yin and yang is the ego and the spirit. The ego and the spirit. Now, your ego demands that you walk down the street and get mobbed. Your ego can never get enough uh, fame, fortune, money, power. It has an insatiable appetite. It can't get enough, and it'll eventually drive you to failure because it can't get enough. Spirit, conversely, is like that song of the 70s by the Hollies. All I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. Right. To love your work. Right. To love your mankind. So spirit who's, is who you really are. Right. But we're always in a fight with that ego and that Holy Spirit. I'll be in a car, and a guy will cut me off, and I'll start that. You run, and then all of a sudden, I'll say, whoa, hold on, hold on. <laughs> That's my ego. That's not my spirit. Oh, my spirit. I love what you're saying. It's just I, I wrap my head around it all the time. So I travel around the world teaching improvisation to people. But really what I teach is I just came from two weeks in, in, in Florida. But what I really teach is exactly what you're talking about. It's that mindfulness. The thing that the moment that you feel angry, you're going, hey, wait a minute. That's not my natural being. That's not my natural spirit. That's not what I'm on this planet to do. I'm on this planet to, to grow, to connect, to listen. And that's what I'm here to do. And to love, and certainly you said to love. And it's it's the recognition of, oh, right now I'm not working through love, I'm working through ego. When mm -hmm. I feel that I'm being um, beat down, that's not, nothing's happening. It's not biological. 
Well, it's if you're an entertainer, I, I, I tell actors, actresses, I do, sometimes I do it for Screen Actors Guild or after I give one of these motivation speeches, but if you're in this industry in show business because as an actress or a, a comedian or a singer or whatever, you say, because I'm going to show them sons of bitches mm -hmm. back home. I'm, wait till they see where I'm at. Mm -hmm. and, when, and when they see that car that I'm driving, when I get that money in the bank and I get that, then you're in it for all the wrong reasons. Yep. And I promise you, it won't have a happy ending. But if you're in it because spiritually you say, I love the sound of laughter. Right. I love to make people laugh. I, I like that my singing moves people or my lyrics or my acting can move an audience or uh, into a direction. Then you're in it for all the right reasons. Because right. then it doesn't matter, Dave, if you're on stage at night in front of four people and they're all four laughing, or you're on stage in front of 40,000 people. Right. I've done both. You know. By the way, the 40,000 didn't come to see me. <laughs> <laughs> when I was opening for Frank in Hawaii one time. I, I, I'll give you a great, uh, I'm, I'm jumping off the subject here, but... It's ADD. This yeah, is right. all about ADD. Uh, right. That's right. I, I felt like we're, we're, too, we're too far on, 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 uh, on point here, so we might as well start. You know what, uh, um, a guy one time called my manager, I'm embarrassed to tell you this story, but a guy called my manager from Canada and he said, I'm going to interview Tom Dreesen and, and um, could you give me some bullet points or something that could lead him in a direction? My manager said, ask him how his day is and then get the hell out of his way. <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed to say it. But <clears throat> my point of, of, of opening for Frank Sinatra, what I was saying is that here was your assignment. You know, when I first went to work for him, there'd be arenas of 20,000 people. And you'd say, Dave, um, there's 20,000 people out there. And you've got to go stand in the center of them. They're all around you. I want you to stand in the center of those 20,000 people, and for the next 45 minutes, Dave, I want you to hold their attention. Oh, one more thing, Dave. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for the next 45 minutes, and I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no special orchestra, nothing. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Dave. Not one of them came to see you. <laughs> You go, go, uh, okay. Uh, you know. But that's, that's what I, when, luckily when I first had turned with Frank, I had already done like 40-something Tonight shows. I right. had, had some, you know, uh, uh, you know sometimes uh, where audience would walk out and they'd say, oh, I know. But you were in a position. In Hawaii, uh, there was 40,000 people outdoors and I had to go out and, and, and do that for 45 minutes while they all came to see Frank. And so it, it, it's a great, but that being said, as fearful as some people might think it is, for me, it was always a great challenge. Can I do this? Can I pull this off? You know? The great, the interesting thing is, as, you, as you're telling that story, I'm, I'm, I'm present to the idea that you weren't concerned about the end result. You were concerned about you being at every step of that. Do you understand what yeah. I mean? Staying in the moment. Though. Exactly. Staying, Staying in the moment. moment every single step of the way. And that's what you're doing every step of the way. You weren't... And all the things that you rattled off about, oh, I'm, you know, the, having the money, I'm going to show them. And having the car, I'm going to show them. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, and they're, they're going to see what I'm going to do. All, none of, all of that is in the future and none of that is in the now. In the moment. And, and it's not, and it goes back to the, the lovely cliche is it's not the destination, it's the journey. And people have to remember that because what, exactly what you're talking about, if I'm always going for what's the end result, I will never get there because I'm not present to the here no. that gets me there. Yeah, no, no question about that, that what you're saying. Um, that Anxiety comes from either thinking in the future or in the past. Right. <clears throat> People become anxious because they're thinking, well, what am I going to do? I've got to do that. Or, oh, my God, why didn't I ever say that or do that? 
not, and, and that's where anxiety comes from. Staying in the now erases anxiety, right. staying in the moment. I had little tricks that I would pull. I teach at the comedians all the time. When I walk out in front of 20,000 people, <clears throat> and they all thought Frank was coming out, I'd walk out, and, and the, or- the orchestra would play me out, and when I walked out, and, I, and I'd say, how many of you people out there are in this arena for your very first time? Applaud. Those who are in the arena for your first time, and you'd hear applause. I'd say, how many of you out there are seeing Frank Sinatra for your very first time? Applaud. And they would applaud. Then I might say something, how many of you out there aren't wearing any underwear? Applaud. But point was, see, I talk, you react. Right. I talk. Ah, I was teaching them. Right, I talk, right, you react. Right. I, and once I got them into my zone, then I could start doing my comedy. To walk out and do the best joke you had would be in the wind. So my point was, I was getting their attention. I talk, you react. Mm-hmm. But I never said, raise your hands. Right. I'd say, those of you who are in the arena for your first time, applaud. You know? Right. How many of you in the first time applaud? How many of you? And I got them to, I talk, you react. I'm getting them into. Now, I'm in charge here. Right. I just took command. You know, but and you also took command in a way that was ve- people had to think about it and then do something, yeah. as opposed to I think a lot of a lot of standups come out and go, "Hey, uh, how's everybody doing?" Yeah. It's like, "How's everybody doing tonight? How about a nice round of applause at the How about a- <laughs> yeah, right? All that stuff as opposed to and what what you also did was I mean in those questions that you asked within those questions are also you being in that arena for the first time. Mm-hmm. I, maybe that's yeah. your point. Yeah, you know, sure. you being in the arena for the first time. Absolutely. You know, and you being in front of these people for the first time, and everybody going, you know what? This is a first time for everybody, and it's the first time yeah. that you're seeing me. Well, the, you know, the, Frank Sinatra had this uncanny. That's why studying under him and, and Sammy Davis, who was the greatest single performer on the planet, could do it all. But to watch them, Frank Sinatra could be in an arena of 20,000 people, and he had start to sing, and all of a sudden you were in a bar with him, the guy in the furthest seat up there was sitting in a bar with him, and Frank was singing to him and his wife. Yep. You know, he had that uncanny ability to bring it all down. Well, I'll tell you, I saw Frank Sinatra uh, at the United Center. Um, you did not open for him. Um, I was uh, supposed to do that gig, and I had a corporate gig that I'd signed to. Some corporations hiring me for like five years in a row, uh-huh. and I couldn't do that in my... But I worked with him in Chicago maybe 15 times. Well, they had a young kid named Don Rickles do it. A guy, a young kid. Whatever happened to him? I don't know. I don't know. I hope he's okay. Um, <laughs> but what you said about, because I was up there, uh, Joyce Sloan, uh, the, the late, wonderful Joyce Sloan, who is the uh, producer of The Second City and in Chicago. And a wonderful lady, yeah. Beautiful lady, wonderful mm-hmm. lady. She uh, got my wife and me uh, Skybox, t- Skybox tickets. Mm-hmm. So he was singing to my wife and me. Uh, yeah, it, it, you got that feeling. By the way, when you divorced your wife, did she get those tickets? Did you get those ex tickets? Because my ex-wife got my friends, too. She took my friends into divorce. Was, uh, there's was, some people I'm not allowed to talk to, but a lot of them, a lot of them come back to me and say... I've, I had one, one, one couple say, you divorced Katie, you didn't divorce us, so return our phone calls, would you, you bastard? And I'm like, okay, I get it. I you know, isn't that the trouble with divorce, though? It does happen that the friends divide, and, and it's really kind of a sad... If you know, Again, go back to Sinatra. When I was getting my divorce, he said to me, I can't get, first of all, I went into Vegas to work with him, and, and uh, he said, oh, where's the wife? And I said, ah, Frank, we're going, we're going to a divorce. And he said, oh, that's too bad. He said, I can't give you any advice on marriage, but I can advise you on divorce. <laughs> he said, stay friends with her. Mm. Stay friends. I don't care how much it hurts. Stay friends. Not for you, not for her, but for the kids. And he did that. He stayed friends with Ava, with Nancy, right. with Mia. And at his funeral, they were all sitting there. Ava not, because Ava had passed away right. in the garden. Right. But he, 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 that was his advice. Stay friends right. for the kids. Not for you and not for her. Right. But, you know. Yeah. How long were you married? I was 26 years. Yeah. 
Yeah. I get married when I was 19. You know, I was a kid in the service and, and did the, what, you know, a girl gets pregnant and you're going to do the right thing. Right. See, I, I came, and I'm going to get real passionate about this. I came from an era. When I was 13 years old, my mother said, 13 years old, my brother, you get a girl in trouble, you'll stand by her. I'm 13 years old, ma. You know, I'm just learning about this Mom stuff. Knew. But, but see, in my right. neighbor, that was the mantra. Mm-hmm. That was the mantra. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, white neighborhood, Polish neighborhood, Irish neighborhood, Italian mm-hmm. neighborhood. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. If a girl got pregnant, the men of that community went out and said, come here, you. Right. You're taking care of that child. If you say, I don't want to get married. All right. You don't get married, but you're taking care of that child. Because right. see, if you don't, we have to. The family has to. Then the government came along many years ago and said, if you have one baby out of wedlock, you get 220. If you have two babies out of wedlock, you get 440, then 660. And guess what happened? All of a sudden, it was not the responsibility of the child. The government took that responsibility. It was to, not the responsibility of the parent. Of, of the, the parent, father. I'm sorry, the father. Yeah. yeah. The, the government took care of it. Now, what happens were, in Harvey, Illinois, where I grew up at, in 1960, 4% of the children being born were being born fatherless. Today, over 70%. 77% of all teenage crimes in America are created by fatherless teenagers, wow. according to sociologists. 77%. This year in Detroit, 75% of the children being born are being born fatherless. How important is a man in the community? In, in my community, if, if the young thugs are running, if there was an old, Pol- old, old Polish neighborhood and young Polish kids were running the neighborhood, stealing women's purses and hitting people ahead, the Polish men of that community went out and grabbed that guy and said, come here, you, you're going home to your father. Right. The toughest guy I knew growing up was my black friend, Everett Nicholson. His nickname was Gucci. One night we were out late and a cop was going to take us home and he begged him. He said, please, officer, don't take me home. If I pull up in front of that house in a squad car, my dad will be all over me. Those men are gone from the community. My charity in my golf tournament is not multiple sclerosis this year. It's the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative. Mm-hmm. Because of that point that I'm making, right. we have to man up. We got a thing now called Team Dad, Dad Up. You got to dad up. Right. You know, do you know that one in three children being born in America today don't have a father in their birth certificate? Oh, boy. This is, this is, and this is a national disgrace, and no right. one will talk about it, David. Right. No one wants it to, because it's political, and it might be racial, right. and let's not go there. Right. I don't, I don't look at Americans as black or white or Polish or Italian. We're all Americans. Right. This is our country, and this is our problem. You know? Right. Forgive me for getting on this. No, no, no. I get it, and I keep, I keep thinking about from where you came, like the neighborhood that you grew up in, and 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 the fact that you were one of eight, right? Eight, yes. One of eight, and how that helps you. God, it could go one of either it could go a myriad of ways. One of the ways is like you feel disenfranchised. Another way is you feel part of a community. Yeah. Because you were part of community, and that's the thing that Chicago brings is the sense of community, a no neighborhood. Question. You knew what neighborhood. So you, so you're you're from Harvey, um, uh, which is a suburb, uh, like a, a town, a township. Forty seven South. Yeah. Right. Right. What was the Chicago neighborhood? The, the, that you were adjacent to? Well, we, you know, we, we were 147 South. The loop is zero. So right, we right. But what neighborhood? So for me, I live in Rogers Park. You were in Harvey, which is close to what neighborhood? Yeah, well, Harvey, Harvey, you got to remember, Harvey, Harvey had steel mills and factories and right. everything. We were a microcosm right. of Chicago. You know, we were a community, you know, microcosm. But um, the closest would be 95th and, you know, I mean, the, the, south, the south side of Chicago. Beverly. Right, but that would be South Shore. Beverly. Beverly. Beverly right? 127th right. was Beverly. You right. know, we were, we were in that. Yeah. And all those areas, because you talk about Beverly, I was in Rogers Park, but what they have on the south side, the on the north side, was parishes. 
You know, you talk about your parents, uh, uh, Christ the King and, and all those By the way, sons. that's how you directed people in Chicago. They never asked you where you're from. They said, what parish are you from? Not Northside. Yeah. Never no. would you talk about the parish on the Northside. No. People go, what are you talking about, parish? I don't live in New Orleans. Oh, Southside. Yeah, they are. Yeah, Southside. But, you know, you go, you go south, south of Madison. It's like, what parish are you from? But that's how they used to, my dad used to, most people would direct you by parishes. Yeah. They'd say, uh, how do I get to Midlothian? Well, you know what St. Christopher says? <laughs> exactly. My dad did just the opposite. He directed you by taverns. He would say, you know where Ed's Curvin is? Yeah, turn left at Ed's Curvin. He would direct you by, because he, he lived in bars. You know? One of the things about that I noticed when I first moved out to L.A. is if you took all the donut shops and made them into bars, you can rename the city Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, one of those things, like, there's so many donut shops. Like, could you just take half of them and call them Ed's Curvin or, you know, you the they, that, What, what bothered me when I came out here was they don't have neighborhoods. You know, Chicago, no. there were neighborhoods. You know, Chicago, and, and, and now we're going to get in a lot of trouble with you. Listen, I... I think it's the greatest city in America I agree. for a lot of reasons. Number one, I mean, for for culture, for art, the art institute, yeah. uh, the the the, the arch, uh, architecture, Frank Lloyd Wright influences mm-hmm. the Lakeshore. Um, restaurants can compete with anybody. What a sports town! Two major league teams, great sports town. But the bottom line are the people. Yep. The people, yep. you know, uh, they're, they're friendly, open people. Sinatra used to tell me, he said, Tommy, most people think I work New York more than any other city. I work Chicago. He had two songs from Chicago, yeah, you know, right. My Kind of Town and and, and, um, and Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Oh, right, yeah. that's right. This is my kind of town. <laughs> that's right. By the way, when that's I worked right. with him in Chicago, you know, we'd work, whatever, theater, Chicago theater, the, the uh, uh, we worked... Um, the Rosemont Horizon, and right. we worked the Auditorium Theater. Right. And, I mean, we worked every theater in the city, but when we worked the Chicago Theater, they had just put $8 million into it and renovated it. Right. And as a little boy, I had gone to that theater, and now to go there and see your name on the marquee in your hometown with Frank Sinatra right. was so overwhelming oh, geez, to me. But Tom. he would he would come out, I would do my show, and then I'd go to the wings, and then there would be an intermission, and Frank would walk out with no introduction. He'd walk to the center, and he'd look at the audience, and he'd go, this is my kind of town, Chicago. And they would go wild. Oh. It was such a moment. Well, just a story that you're telling. I'd go wild. Like, ah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Um, did you play any of the classic um, uh, uh, venues? Like, uh, was Mr. Kelly's around when you were sure. there? Sure. That was, that was, that's Gibson's Steakhouse now. Gibson's, right. But, but right. When, I, when I set out in Chicago, Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. Right. And as history shows, we were the last. We wrote a book last a uh, couple of years ago I that's now that. becoming a movie. Uh, we I just saw the final draft the other day. But there were no comedy clubs in in, in America when Tim Reed and I started off. There was one in New York called the Improvisation, but sure. Friedman started. But it had a singer then a comic, and they didn't pay. You know? Right. I started the first one in Chicago called La Pub. After I had gone to New York and saw what they did, and saw that the comics in New York had a place to be bad, we didn't have a place to be. Where bad. was La Pub? Where was it? It was on uh, uh, Lincoln Park. It was, it was called Le Pub, and he, they, they later turned it into a gay bar, which made a lot more money than the comedy club. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, I started with a guy named Henry Norton. He had four restaurants in Chicago, and I, I went what to... What restaurants? I'm sorry. Uh, just like... por- the Chop House. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, right, 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 right. Uh, Henry, Henry w- w- interesting story about this guy. Him and three of his buddies, all they did was drink. They were very successful investors and lawyers, and every night they'd meet in the bars, and one night they decided, why should we give our money to somebody else? Why don't we buy our own bar, and we'll hang out there, and they all signed a deal... Whoever gets married is out of the deal. So he was the last man standing. The other three guys got married, and he owned a bar, you know. And then he, he turned the bar into a restaurant. And right. Then, 
and uh, and but he was an interesting guy. He, he, so you did the pub. So you did the pub. Uh, I started you opened the pub. You opened the you, you started. It was your business. It was. It, well, it wasn't my business. I, I got the first comedy club in Chicago. I went uh-huh. on all the radio and TV shows in in Chicago, and I and and they so the first night they were around the block. Right. You know, a lot of the kids from Second City would come in there in those days. Yeah. Come in into. Uh, into the public to watch us after they did their stuff. Ah, know? look it, at that community right there, right? Yeah. Well, Chicago is very... See, Chicago is so supportive of you if you're an entertainer. I, here's my analogy, and you, you'll agree with this, I'm sure. Chicago, when you start out, they will support you, write about you, get behind you. But you, they want you to leave. Like your parents, they want you to leave and show the rest of the world they were right about you. Oh. So if, if you leave your parents at 19, you'll break their hearts. But come back at 24, success, and they adore you. Yep. Stay with your parents till you're 35 and see how much they adore you. <laughs> 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 so Chicago wants you to leave is my point. Well, my, 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 my thought, was, this is what I've also recognized like, in Chicago. Like, when, you, when, you, when you fail in Chicago, people go, that was really bad. You were horrible. Yeah. What's the next gig you're gonna do? Yeah, they didn't right. go. I'm not gonna watch you anymore. They're gonna go. When? Yeah. What? So you're gonna put? Yeah. You, that's the I will spirit, right? Or you're gonna have to work on that. You know exactly. Uh, I see exactly. what you're trying to do there, but it didn't work. But you have to go back and re- exactly. Back to the drawing it's not board. give it up. Yeah, no one's gonna have to, to work quit. on that. Yeah. Yeah. But it has to do with the weather and all that stuff there too. Yeah. Um, uh, so this movie that you're doing, I'm really excited because I remember. Uh, so that the clip that I saw of you on <clears throat> uh, you and Tim on Letterman, uh, that was in 2008, I believe. And now the now it's you got a final script of it. Are you writing the script? No, uh, they've got four, uh, three young writers, mm-hmm. and um, and they're doing it. And um, a guy named Paul Pompian is producing it. By the way, a, a, a f- former Chicago, and he lives out here. He's produced a lot of film, but. When we wrote the book, several people were interested in doing a movie, and we interviewed and interviewed and interviewed Tim and I. Right. And then we decided that, and Paul, because he was so passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And being a fellow Chicagoan, I think he knew. I was going to ask you know, that. You know, in 2008, President Obama and, um, and John McCain, to their credit, said, we need more discourse among the races. You know, we need more discourse among the races. In 1969, Tim Reed and I were the only discourse among the races. People will tell you, well, Bob Cope and Bill Cosby, they were on TV. They did a a script. Um, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder did movies. Years later. Tim Reed and I were out in the trenches. Right. There were no comedy clubs in America. We worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they call the Chitlin Circuit. Right. Black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. The 20 Grand in Detroit, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the right. Club Harlem in Atlantic City, in Chicago, the Dating Club Lounge, um, the um, High Chaparral, the Burning Spear. All black clubs, black-owned, black-operated right. nightclubs. Right. I'd be the only white guy within five miles. And we used to do jokes. I was the world's fastest human from the parking lot to the stage. And, <laughs> and uh, we, we used to do routines off of it. Uh, last white man to go through this neighbor was Daniel Boone, and, 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 and he was on a Honda. And, and we used to, do, Tim and I, you know, in those days we could get away with stuff. We did things that you, today the politically correct police would destroy us. Right. But that's what we were. We were the first of our of our kind. And, and the, the the tragedy is, I've always thought that the story in the movie isn't that we were America's first black and white comedy team. The story is that we were the last. That was forty years ago. 
Right. And no, there's never been one since. So what we did, you know, the, the dues we paid, no other act ever had to pay. The fourth time on stage in Chicago Heights, a guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face. I know, I, I, I heard yeah. that. And then tried to beat the bejesus out of me. And I boxed when I was in the service. I, I was in the Navy four years, but I served in the Marine Corps unit nine months, and I boxed. Did. And I could handle myself, but this guy outweighed me by 100 pounds and, and pummeled me, you know. What, they hit him with a ketchup bottle? Was that Tim tried to, you know, uh, uh, and the guy didn't budge, you know, and, and, uh, and, and he was choking me to death. And uh, it's a long story, but, and, uh, but, but anyhow, then, the, 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 you know, Tim said to me, we were getting in a car, we were all beat up, and he said, welcome to show business, you know. I said, well, a year later, a guy at University of Illinois hit me in the face with an ice ball um, in the darkness. And, uh, I mean, it, this kind of stuff happened to us. And yet there were people that loved what we did. Right. You know, but right. we... You know, we were the discourse America wasn't having. If Tim and I were on the stage and we weren't even talking about race, if we were just talking about going to get a hot dog, we were a black man and a white man having a discourse that America was not having. <sighs> when you saw Tim and I walk down the street together, you know, you, we, the people thought we were either cops or we were gay. But even in those days, a gay interracial couple wouldn't walk down the street. Right. You know, so, we, you know, we, we, you know, you know and, and the other thing is that he had a wife and two kids and I had a wife and three kids. We had to make a living right now. Right. You know, it, the, the pressure that was on us and what we endured and the fun we had is what the movie is going to be about. I, I also look at certainly the relationship the two of you had, um, the openness that the two of you had. And then you talk about your uh, relationship with, with Leno or with Leno and Letterman, like the way that y'all, that you were open and the way that you all interacted with each other and the support that you gave each other is just so vital for us to not feel alone in this world and to feel like we are all in this together. The idea that, um, uh, you know, like you and Tim just moving up together and growing up together and evolving in that way. I attribute a lot of that mind to the having eight brothers and sisters, right. both parents are alcoholic, so we bonded. Us kids bonded, and, and, and that sort of community you get, as you pointed out earlier, you know, and, and that also, see, most entertainers that I've met, as I pointed out earlier, are, whether you're a singer or an actor, are very insecure. And so the insecurity that in them is what makes them resistant to you. It isn't that they're confident in themselves, why they resist you. They're absolutely the opposite. But I take it to you, you know, I take it to you. It doesn't matter to me whether I'm interacting with Dave right here in, in, in this show or whether I'm on the Letterman show. Right. It doesn't matter, you know. Right. I mean, for, for someone to say, and that's what happens in our business, we let our ego take over who right. you are as a human being. Right. You know, and, and uh, so that's why I don't, it doesn't matter to me that I'm being interviewed here by you or that I'm being interviewed by David. They're both very important. Right. You know, because it's, it's, it's just... You know, communicating. And, and Dave is, was not like when I met Dave, had I known what a recluse Dave Letterman was. See, when I first met Dave, I came off stage at the comedy store. He had an old beat up red pickup truck and he had a little beard. He had just driven in from Indianapolis. And he said to me, You're very funny, uh, Mr. Dreesen. And I said, Oh, I said, What is your, I said, Call me Tom. What is your name? He said, Dave Letterman. I said, oh, Where are you from, Dave? He said, Indianapolis. I said, Oh, you know, I'm from Chicago. And we started talking basketball. Right. And, you know, because. Huge uh, basketball. You know, I just took it to him, not knowing he was this shy guy. Then I, I, I kept taking it to him every time I saw him. And then I said, Hey, you want to play some basketball? I took him over to the van. Why we played basketball? Mm -hmm. We played racquetball first, and then we played basketball. And I kept taking it to him. Later, when Dave became this big star, and I realized what a recluse he is, had I known that, I would have respected that and not taken it to him so much. But by that time, we were friends, right? And and uh, and you're friends because you took it to him, yeah, right? Yeah, because he, you know. But but again, that's just my nature from my childhood, right? And and uh, and also. 
um, that that breaking down that barrier of not who you are as a your stature as a comedian, it's who you are as a person that attracts me, you know, to you. The comics, I remember even at the comedy show sometimes, if you were like a Monday nighter and I was a Saturday nighter, I wasn't sure that I would spend too much time with you. Oh, I get it. I get <laughs> it's it. It's so, so stupid. Right. It's so, it's so arbitrary when you really yeah. look at it and you go, the walls that we put up are crazy. Yeah. But when you live in a, when you live in a house with eight people and you live, you were the only white guy in a black neighborhood, you have no choice. Yeah. You know, you've got to surrender to that, and you've, you've um, got to just accept it. You do have a choice. You can reject it, or you can accept well, it. Well, certainly, but the thing is, what I'm saying is, yeah. you, you do have a choice, but the choice is to be miserable or to, or to accept it, yeah. and that's it. And the difficult thing is, if you grow up knowing that, that you've got to accept it, your life just comes to you. Yeah. Well, it, it, again, that's all part of, part of your growth. Marianne Williamson, who wrote um, Return to Love, and she right. wrote... A Woman's Worth and a hundred other she's books. She's great. She was involved in A Course in Miracles. If you ever right. get a chance to see her, if you haven't seen her live, she's been Yeah, I have seen her live. But, she's one, but she said, uh, uh, you know, that all we came here for, we only came here to grow. That's all we, our spirits came here to grow. So every relationship you're involved in, not necessarily love affairs, but love affairs as well, are all for growth. You'll say, gee, I don't see Eileen anymore. Eileen and I were the best of friends. Well, you and Eileen grew as much as you could, and you moved on. Right. We keep moving on. Right. Into other, you know, and, and so that's, to me, this whole journey is about growth. I can learn from watching a Monday nighter doing stand-up. I'll sometimes go to watch kids, and, and they'll ask me for their advice. But I'll see somebody up there, and I'll say, oh, wow, that's pretty clever. Right. You know, we, can, we, we are lifelong learners. That's when you begin to decay. The moment you stop learning is when we begin to decay, you know. And, yeah. and, and so we're lifelong learners, especially comedians. Here's my, one of my favorite stories. I was working in Harris, uh, at Harris with Sammy Davis Jr., and George Burns was appearing next door at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. I went to watch him perform. He was 95 years old. He didn't run out to that microphone, but when he got out there, he did a solid hour and 10 minutes. And after he got done, I went backstage, and he was all excited. I said, George, great show. He said, Tommy, he had a little card with him. He said, I had a couple new jokes. He was just showing me the new jokes. He's 95 years old. I said, that's what I want to be. That, that's when I grow up, I want to be just like you, George. If you say you're done, you're done. He was 95. Caesars Palace offered him five years, a five-year contract. He turned it down. You know why? He said, I'm not sure Caesars will be around in five years. <laughs> okay, I'm going to end there, and I'm going to tell you what, what a wonderful joy this has been. And um, I, I want to I give you an opportunity to plug what, you're, plug what you're doing right now. So today is, what, June what? What's today? Anybody know what day it is? 20... <laughs> it's in the 26 it's 26 so what do you so what because what can people see you in assuming this is going to take a couple weeks to if, if you get to know me you can see me in the shower there's a lot of you that uh -huh. you, you know I am really open to <laughs> but, uh, the shower venue yeah now you know you know I'm, I'm doing I'm, I'm touring the nation doing a one-man show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. Mm -hmm. I used to call it An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. Then people say, oh, do you sing? <laughs> so, I said, no, there was only one Sinatra. So it's An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. It's a one-man show that mm -hmm. I'm doing all around the country in theaters and, and, um, and, and also in, in, in little clubs. But, um, and then I, I also uh, I've got the, I'm doing acting. I just did a film with Clint Eastwood. I had about four lines in a movie with Clint, which was really funny. And I'm gonna What's take the name of that movie? It, the, it's called um, Thrown, uh, Thrown by a Curve. Mm -hmm. He 
is a, a baseball scout down in the south, and he gets macular degeneration. Uh-huh. And he, he, he usually scouts pitchers and sends them up to the big leagues. But now he, he gets macular degeneration. He doesn't want anybody to know that. And it, it's a father-daughter movie. His daughter, who is a member of a law firm, and they were somewhat estranged. Mm-hmm. They, she comes to help him, and he tells her to go back to the law firm. But they end up forming this wonderful relationship. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had a couple lines in a bar with him, and uh, I'm going to take it on the letterman. So it's real, real funny stuff that we did on it. But Love it. But anyhow. Um, and, and your motivational stuff, which really, which really, I think speaks to, speaks to a lot of people. I think you really get to a lot of people now that you get get through to me. Um, is there anywhere that we can? Well, you know, I'm like, go to my website, tomdreesen.com, and, and that's where all you'll see my my schedule. I'm right. doing motivation speeches, and, and uh, in fact, another agent um, just got home. And she signed me. She's really aggressive, and she wants me to do a lot more of this. I'm. I'm I'm really busy. Also, I you know I play golf. I'm the master of ceremonies for the AT and T Pebble Beach. I'm the master of ceremonies for the Bob Hope Classic. Uh-huh. I'm the master of ceremonies for the Frank Sinatra tournament. <laughs> for Tiger Woods, Tiger uses me as well as Arnold Palmer for uh-huh. their events. So I'm I'm running all over the co- country, playing golf, performing, doing. You're so alive, man. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're so alive. Well, yeah, because this is a joy. I, I mean, know. this is really a joy to make a living at what you love to do. Right, and who the, you are. The problem is traveling. It's not that it, you know they pay us to travel. They don't pay us to perform. You know. Right. But, <laughs> right. Um, okay, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much. Okay, Tom thank Jason. you. You've got right. enough here for nine shows. I know we do. <laughs> right. Good. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. That was a blast. Today's episode was sponsored by AquaSurf. With locations in Florida, California, and Hawaii, they are the nation's leading surf instructors. For more information, visit www.aquasurf.com. We are the locals, brah. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I am Ian Foley, and this is Mama Mel. Prepare for enlightenment so bright, it will sunburn your soul with Mama Mel. Lately, I've noticed a very disturbing trend. I'm seeing more and more middle-aged men wearing skinny jeans. Now, I'm confused. Guys, if your junk is so sensitive, how can you stand having it all gnarled up in your pants, looking like a sad, fat vagina sitting in the corner on prom night wearing a hideous black jean dress? Perhaps you think it makes you look younger? Um, If that's the case, men, let me clarify. Skinny jeans are not the fountain of youth. If appearing to have a sad, fat vagina made you look younger, well, Mama Mel would look five now, wouldn't she? But she doesn't. So spread the word, guys. Bros don't let bros rock mammal toes.